1 Samuel 19, it says this. Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand before my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand when he struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. When they will, he said, why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David then David called Jonathan and told him all these words. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as formerly. When these war, wars came again, David went out and fought against the Philistines and defeated them with great slaughter, so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that the spear stuck in the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save yourself tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring him to me on his bed, that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goats here at its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is in Naoth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company, the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well in Saku, and asked and said, Where is Samuel and David? Someone said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he proceeded there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Naoth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and laid down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? 
We stop there. Powerful chapter, yet somewhat spiritually confusing. And we look at here, Saul, a king estranged from God, who the Holy Spirit has been removed from and is afflicted by an evil spirit. We see the Lord speaking through him prophetically and prophesying, and it's somewhat confusing here. So uh, at the beginning of the chapter, the gloves are off. Saul, you know, has been back and forth with David. You know, he wants to get rid of him. He wants to murder him. He's hoping the Philistines will take him out. Yet every time he goes against the Philistines, he doesn't get killed. He slaughters them. And then it looks great for David and bad for Saul. So now the gloves are off. And he's like, I'm just going to flat out kill him to the point where he says in verse one, he told Jonathan, his son and all his servants. So it's, it's out now to put David to death. But Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. Now think about this. Your king in the kingdom you live in has just put out a death warrant on your head. Think about how serious this is. You've got all the people in the kingdom looking for you. You've got all his men against you. And it's a very serious, deadly situation for David. It would be like if an executive order came down from the president and the CIA and the FBI and all law enforcement with, with your face on CNN and Fox News. Shoot on sight. That wouldn't be good, right? That would cut down unnecessary trips to Starbucks. We'd have to go into hiding. I mean, think about it. The full force of a government against you. Here's David. He's done nothing wrong. Yet the full force of a kingdom is unleashed against him. Why? Because the king's ego is bruised and the jealous king wants him dead. And so the gloves are off. Now, in verses 2 and 3, we see David gets help from a somewhat unlikely source, the son of the king. Jonathan gives David the heads up. Say, hey, you've been put on the royal hit list. There's a hit out for you. You better hide yourself. And I want you to think about this. You remember as we studied, Jonathan was a good man and he had a covenant cut with David. They, they made a covenant together. Jonathan took his armor off and his helmet off and his sword and he put it on David. And he's basically saying, look, you know what, David, I understand God's called you to be the king. I know I'm next in line for the throne because I'm Saul's son, but I believe what God's doing in your life and I'm not going to stand in your way. They made a covenant together. Now, it's easy to make deals, and it's easy to make promises, but when it comes time to keep the deal and keep the promise, a lot of people balk, because a lot of people make an easy commitment, but they don't follow through. Jonathan follows through. Jonathan's a man of integrity. He made a covenant. Now, he could have just stepped back and did nothing and say, well, I'm not involved in this, and if David gets killed, well, then it works out okay for Jonathan, because he's in next in line to be king, but he doesn't do that. He puts himself in harm's way at his own peril because he has integrity. And he's a model of integrity for us. He steps up there and he steps up on behalf of his friend, you know, and he shows himself to be a true friend. How many of us would like a friend like that? There's only a few people raising their hand. No. You like those friends that talk about you? Say you look fat in that dress? You see this? Now I touched a nerve. No, we, we, loyal friends are hard to come by. I mean, if you could get somebody who's loyal to you, even, I mean, think about this guy is loyal and it's even costing him something. Wow. 
What an example of friendship. What an example of integrity that Jonathan shows us here. He steps up for David and he goes to bat with him, uh, for him. In verses four to six, he stands in front of his father and he stands there and he kind of, you know, he runs interference for David and he, and he does it at his own peril. It says in verse four, then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said, do not let the king sin against his servant David since he has not sinned against you and since his deeds have been beneficial to you. And, it, and then he talks about how he killed Goliath, and that was a good thing. In verse 6, uh, we're going to see that Saul responds to it, but in verse 5, he says what? Don't sin against innocent blood. Those are two things I want you to pick up there. The, first of all, he says, don't sin against David, and then he says, don't sin against innocent blood. Let's talk about that a little bit. Jonathan is right on point here. He says, you know, he comes to his father, not in arrogance, not with ultimatums, but he uses diplomacy and wise words. That's a good thing for us to consider. You know, in life, we get a lot further with diplomacy and wise words than we do with confrontation and anger and vitriol. Anybody? Do you remember when people could have a conversation and disagree and not try and kill one another? Those days are long gone. Now you either agree with me or I'll assassinate you whether it's on Facebook or literally, right? <laughs> Edgar got it. So bless the Lord, here he comes and he's got wise words, he's diplomatic, he has a solid argument and he basically says to Saul, why should you kill David? David hasn't done anything against you and it, it, it would be a sin for you to do this. He basically says that you know what he's done has been beneficial to you. You know, he killed Goliath. He took care of your giant problem. When none of your warriors would do it, Dave said, I got it. And he did. And it was good for Israel. And it was good for Saul. He notices here that he throws in that line about innocent blood. Uh, people uh, are loyal and in ways. And he's saying, David's loyal to you. He's done nothing for you. Now, if you kill him, the, all the people are going to know he was innocent, he was a good man, and you sinned against him. Now, remember, what was the one thing that motivated Saul? The people's opinion of him. So Jonathan is smart and wise the way he approaches him. He, he almost approaches him in that way, you know, to, to kind of appease his ego here. Like, if you do this, dad, you're going to look real bad. And that was the one thing that motivated Saul. Uh, and so it did. And he, he responds to all of this and he listens uh, to the diplomacy and the wise words. And it's uh, amazing in verse 6 that the result that we get here, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, a miracle, a father listening to his son, the king listening to his son. He listened to Jonathan and vowed, listen, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So Saul is so moved, he makes a vow. He makes a promise. We're going to see he breaks it in just a few verses. <laughs> but so far, a good result here. He's like, all right, all right, you're right. The guy's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's been loyal. Uh, I won't kill him. So that's a good result that we get here. He's persuaded by the words and he makes the vow. I want you to see something. You and I need to learn to use our words. <laughs> now you're quiet. You and I need to learn to use our words. Do you ever hear a mother say to a little child that's frustrated that won't communicate, use your words. At 50, my wife still says that, use your words. You know, we get so frustrated and we're like, you know, we start just gibberish. Anybody ever been there? Don't look so holy at me. Like, don't look. Man, we'll put a camera in your house for a week. We'll get enough footage to entertain us for years. 
right? Because we get, what do they say? Use your words. And they, what's mom saying? They articulate what the problem is and let's see if we can make a solution. Words are powerful. When God created the earth, what did he do? First, he contacted the Teamsters. You got a crane, you got some the cement cup. No, he, he spoke words. He said, let there be, let there be, let there be. He spoke, words are powerful. You and I are created in the image of God. Our words are powerful. You and I need to learn to use the power of our words. And you know what? Jonathan exemplifies here how that's always got to be the first approach is not to come on strong, not to come on hard, not to inflame a situation. Why? Because when you and I use our words, we can diffuse a situation that would otherwise explode. And that's exactly what Jonathan has done. So take a lesson from this. Let's learn to diffuse situations instead of making them explosive. You know that you can get with some people and if you're not humble or you don't have the right heart or your blood sugar's a little off or you had too much coffee, you could start a knockdown, drag them out fight, couldn't you? Come on there again. Don't look. I know, I know you because I'm the same way. And Jonathan doesn't do that. He, in fact, instead, he's skillful and diplomatic. So we should learn to be diplomats, learn to be peacemakers, learn to be hostage negotiators at times, right? With our words. It's a very important thing. Jonathan's words work. And in verse seven, he goes to fetch up David. David's hiding in the field there. Uh, he has this great conversation with his father. His father promises not to kill David. So what does Jonathan do? He fetches him up. He tells him what happened. And then he brings him to Saul. Look at Jonathan here. He's the peacemaker. He's brokering the peace. He brings the estranged person to the king. And he says, you know, let's, you know, guys, let's, you know, shake hands, hug, you know, we're going to have a great day today. Let's nobody throw spears at each other. And David's restored to his position in the house. And he's again in the house uh, playing the harp and doing what he was called to do. So Jonathan's words broker the peace. And it's, it's a good result uh, that it starts off with there. Now in verses 8 through 10, things seem to return to normal for a span of time. But again, the Philistines crop up. Now, Remember, David had killed Goliath and he had walked around with the trophy of Goliath's head and his weapons and there was peace for a while and the Philistines went away for a while. But the Philistines are the perennial enemy of Israel. And still today, if you, if you trace, if you do a study on who the Philistines are, they are still opposed to Israel. There are some people, there are some things there are, that are always going to be a thorn in your side. Now it's quiet. But God's grace is sufficient, just as it was for Paul. In, in verses 8 through 10 here, it says, When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter, so they fled before him. And, and then there was that evil spirit that was on Saul again. So let's just take a look at what David does. He goes out, he beats the Philistines for Israel, and they have a great victory. Am I missing something, or is that a good thing? Amen? Why isn't Saul happy? I'll tell you why he's not happy. Because another victory for David, another crushing defeat of Israel's enemy for David, another lopsided battle for David. Everything David touches is blessed and it explodes into something good for him. And Saul's out there looking, everybody's happy. Saul is in a bad mood. 
five Advils couldn't take the scowl off his face. I mean, he's just like, oh, everything. And so now he's angry at David again. And what did David do? He just served the king and put his neck on the line and fought Israel's enemies and God gave them victory. Yet someone's not happy. (laughs) You and I have got to get it through our heads that there are some people in life that we cannot please. There are some people that we cannot make happy, amen? Man, you could go up to them and go, hey, uh, would you like 50 bucks? And they're like, why only 50? You know, just some people, no matter what you do for them, you look good today. I didn't look good yesterday. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Hopefully you're not looking at your spouse right now because I'm praying for you. But, I mean, (laughs) you you can't please certain people. Saul, Saul is mad at a good thing again. He's on the outside looking in. Why? Because he rejected God and God rejected him. And he's watching David get blessed and he cannot deal with it. Uh, he breaks his vow again. And in verses 11 through 12, he orders David killed. Now, uh, what happens here is David's back in the house. And remember, it was a crazy house because the last time he was there, uh, they chased him away. He's already gotten a couple javelins thrown at him. He's playing his harp again. And Saul, once again, comes to the decision, hey, it might be a good idea to pin David to the wall with this javelin. Now, I, I told you the principle that I got from this was don't play music for people who have javelins. You know, if they don't like your song. Saul figures, you know, I'm going to kill him right here. And God protects David. He's able to escape with his life. But it says here that he, he drives the javelin into the wall. Wow. You know, another close call. We're going to see that, you know, the gloves are definitely off again. He breaks his vow. And that's the first thing that I want you to see, uh, that he breaks his vow. Do you know people who don't keep their word? Do you know people who make promises to you and just, I mean, as quick as they make them with a smile on their face, they break them and try and stab you in the back, literally in this case, right? I mean, I want to say something about that. You and I have to note the people that break their vows and break their promises and tell us things and then don't follow through. It's quiet now. You know, because you and I need to mark who they are and we need to treat them accordingly. You say, what do you mean by that? We love them, but we don't, we don't trust them and put, you know, what's precious to us in their hands. And it doesn't matter if they have your same last name. It doesn't matter if they're relatives, neighbors, coworkers. You've known them since kindergarten. It doesn't matter. Once a person proves that they're untrustworthy and can't keep their word, you and I need to exercise wisdom in dealing with them. Now, I've noticed Christians, you know, we don't have a lot of wisdom a lot of times. I've seen people deal with snakes and devils and think, well, you know, Pastor, they've changed. No, knucklehead, they didn't change. You just plunge into a deeper level of stupid. Because they have, I've, I've argued with people, and they're like, oh, the person has changed. No, they haven't changed. They're still misusing money. They still have issues sexually. They still, and, and, and you just want to trust them again. Sheep are brilliant. The wolf, looks, he looks like he's in a good mood today. At this point, David cannot trust Saul anymore. He cannot go back into that house. He cannot play the harp for him. He cannot be there to soothe him. You're on your own with your evil spirit, buddy. Get a CD. I'm not playing anymore. (laughs) So 
it's reached a critical situation to the point where Saul chases him out. He flees and he goes to his house. Now, this time, it's not Jonathan that steps up and runs interference for David. It's Instead of Saul's son, it's Saul's daughter, Michael. Now, I mean, think about how enraging this must be to Saul. Everyone in his house, his immediate family, is siding with David against him. You say, why is that? Because in this situation, David is right. And here's another point. You and I have to side with what's right and what's righteous, regardless of who gets on the other side of the line. It doesn't matter if they're the people in your house, people with your same last name, people who you've known all your life. Look, if they stand against what God's word said is true, then you and I have to lovingly say, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord, amen? amen. That I, I can't stand with you. <laughs> not, that, not, not I can't stand you, I can't stand with you. Because we always have to love people, right? And we can be loving to people even when we have to hold up the standard. Now, and if you know me, you, you know that nobody gets a free pass with me. Now, I'm not a hard man to get along with, but if you violate this, I'm not on your team. I've had to cut off my closest friends through decades of ministry that I've had to walk away from people I've known. I've had to tell people that's wrong. You're going to go there yourself. I'm not going there with you. If you repent, I'll help you. I'll restore you, but I'm not going in that pig pen with you. You and I need to get enough backbone to do that. You know, it is amazing to me. I see Christians that see people in sexual sin and all kinds of sin, and, and, and it's just obvious that it's wrong, but they say, you know, they continue to fellowship and align themselves with them, and the word says not to. And, and they say, well, why are you doing that? Because they never did anything to me. That's what, they, that's what they say. You know, so instead of aligning yourself with righteousness and with the man of God and with the word, you align yourself with them because they didn't sin against you. Well, your God is self. And that's the wrong God to serve. You and I have to side with righteousness. In this case, Jonathan does against his father. In this case, Michael does against her father. She sides with the husband because she knows he hasn't done anything wrong. This infuriates Saul. David has to hide or be killed, so he's holed up in his house. Now in verse 13 and 14, we see, you know, Michael, she lets him out the window. She's telling him to escape. She knows what's going on here, and she gives David a way of escape. It says here, then Michael took the household idol, in verse 13, say household idol, and laid it on the bed and put a quilt of goat's hair at the head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. So I want you to see what's going on here. Uh, you know, Michael's pretty slick here. She takes a, high, a household idol. The word in the Hebrew is teraphim. And what it means is an icon or an image that was carved, and it was usually lifelike size. Uh, if you've seen religious statues before, you've seen things like this. This was usually something that the pagans would carve of their relatives. So it'd be great, great granddad. And you know, you'd have an image to him and pagans would pray to their dead relatives. Now I want you to know this life-size thing. She put it in the bed. David obviously had some luscious locks because she threw goat's hair on it to make it look like it was his hairdo. Come on, that was funny. You can laugh in church. <laughs> And she, she puts it in the bed, she puts the wig on it, she covers it up. And I'm like, all right, that's a slick move. You're buying him some time. But I gotta say, wait a minute. Why is there an idol in your house? This is Israel. 
This is the, these are the people of God. Idolatry, the paganism, the second commandment says, thou shalt make no graven image for yourself to worship. If you pray to a statue, that's a form of worship. You and I should not do that. It's a violation of God's commandments. Amen. Yet in David's house, Michael has a household idol. What in the world is it doing there? It is amazing how carnal and how worldly the people of God can become. What are the things in our homes that could be considered idols that are contrary to the word that clash with the truth of Christianity? You know, I can go on and on, but I won't. I just want to say, what in the world is she doing with an idol there? Now, they say these idols were something that the pagan cultures used, that the Romans continued to use through Christianity, and that we even see religious relics and icons and statues today that people bow down to and pray. And I want to tell you something. It's a violation of the second commandment. It's not spiritual. It's not godly. It's religious. And it's a stench in the nostrils of God. She uses this idol here to buy her husband some time. But you say, what in the world was it doing in Israel? Well, remember, Saul was estranged from God. The Holy Spirit had left him. So instead of worshiping God that he had no connection to, scholars believe he gave himself over to paganism. We're going to see that flesh itself out more when he actually consults a witch to get information because he no longer, he no longer has a connection to God. If you've read the scripture and you know the story, you know that he actually goes to a, a psychic medium to get information. Why? Because, you know, he has no more connection to God. So we see this paganism seeping into Israel here as a result of the downward spiral of Saul's spirituality. So that's why there's a household idol in the house because long before David got there, it was there with Saul's blessing. So in verse 15, they pop in through the door and, and you know, she's already ran the ruse that he's sick. And uh, Saul says in verse 16, well, if he's sick, bring him on his bed to me so I can kill him. I mean, this guy is really getting hot at this point. It's like, hey, David, how you doing? On your bed there, hold still. <laughs> you, they finally bust in and they see what has happened here. They see, you know, it, it, was, an, it was an idol. It had the goats here. You got to see. I mean, the soldiers must have been, you got to be kidding me. She fooled us with that. Yeah, she did. David gets a head start here when the goon squad busts in. He's not there, and the jig is up. Now, in verse 17, Michael has to answer to Saul. <laughs> if you, if whether you're a young person or an old person, you know, answering to authority after you snookered them, that'll raise your blood pressure a little bit. How many can relate to maybe when you were a kid and you did something real bad and you thought you'd gotten away with it and you got busted? And mom and dad, my mom and dad were like the FBI. My dad was like a, he was like a CSI, just finding clues. And Fred was, you didn't mess with him. He knew stuff. He knew stuff. I know what you're doing. So now you're in trouble and now you're getting called on the carpet. And you know, it's, a, it's an interesting situation for her. Um, verse 17, she kind of she shows some bad form and says, so Saul says to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he escaped? So, you know, right away he comes to her and, and basically, I mean, it's a ridiculous question. Why did you let your innocent husband escape my murderous threats? <laughs> Duh. Okay. So... But her answer here is, you can miss this if you, if you don't dig in. It says, and Michael said to Saul, listen, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? Come again? 
Say what? What you talking about, Willis? Anybody? She threw him under the bus. He was going to kill me if I didn't. Oh, and he was going to kill you while you were tucking statues under the bed with goats here. Yeah, I thought he was in the bushes. He was going to kill me. Are you getting any of this? She threw him under the bus. Jonathan stands up with integrity. Michael helps David, but she can't stand up to her father. Now, we're not going to judge her too harshly, but we should notice the difference in character. See, this is, what, this is what we're seeing here. The character of people, the human nature. There are some people who will stand with you for so long and then fold up like a cheap camera. There are some people that will face the fires of hell with you shoulder to shoulder. Those are your true friends, the ones you should take good care of. Amen. And so Michael's not about to stand toe to toe with her father here. He's angry. And look what he says. Why did you let my enemy go? Saul is totally out of touch with reality. David was no more his enemy than, you know, uh, I mean, this guy had always served him well. He said, and, and she's, you know, he said, let me go. You know, why should I kill you? So a lot of treachery going on here, uh, half commitments and verses 18 through 24 kind of conclude the chapter. And this is the, the spiritually confusing part that's somewhat surreal is that, you know, as David escapes, first of all, look where David goes when he escapes. And David fled and escaped to Samuel and Ramah. So notice this, David didn't run to his military unit that was fiercely loyal to him. Look, he had the loyalty of the army. He probably had enough loyalty to take the military and create a coup against Saul and take the throne by force. But he doesn't run to the army. He doesn't run to his family in Bethlehem and say, you know, mom and dad, you know, look what they did and Saul and all this stuff and you protect me and part of the clan. No, he runs to the man of God. He goes to Samuel. And why did he do that? Samuel is his spiritual mentor and Samuel is the one who started all this. David was just minding his business, tending sheep, and, and Samuel comes over and wants to see all of Jesse's sons and picks David and anoints him and says, you're going to be the next king. So now David's standing there dripping wet with oil, and he's like, you know, uh, what do I do now? And now he's running from his life from a jealous king, and he says, uh, what do I do now? And so notice where his heart is. This reveals his heart. He runs to the man of God. He wants God's opinion. He doesn't want his family's opinion. Doesn't want the opinion of the people who love him, who are for him. He doesn't want to take things in his own hand and use the military. No, he runs to the man of God and he tells Samuel what's happened. Hey, Samuel, you said I was going to be on the throne. Looks like I'm not going to make it. Ever been there? Ever felt like that? Ever felt like the promise of God in your life was just not going to come to pass? Ever felt like your dreams were dashed and shattered and everything was going your way and now it's completely turned against you? Listen, if God is for you, who can be against you? Run to God. Run to God in moments like that. Our generation gets mad at God and runs away from God. And when you run away from God, you just dig a deeper hole in affliction, in turmoil, in crisis, in trouble. Run to him, not from him. So David runs to him. And, you know, the man of God just basically takes him in, listens to what he's got to say. And uh, he begins to prophesy and all the prophets are there and they're speaking the word of the Lord. And, you know, in verse 19, quickly, you know, Saul finds out where David is. You know, when you're on the run, <laughs> there's always going to be someone to, you know, to rat you out. You can't trust. I mean, I love people. I love people. Let me say it again. I love people. But I trust in God. 
because you can't trust in people. The people who were for you in a day on a dime can turn against you. Remember we said Jesus rode in in Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The next day, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Same crowd. What, you guys didn't get breakfast? You're, you know, switch the decaf, lighten up a little bit. No, on a dime, they turned against him. And that's the way people are. They're fickle. So, you know, people blow David in. Saul knows exactly where he's at. Verse 20 uh, through 21, Saul sends three sets of messengers. And, and what are the messengers to do? They're to grab David up, bring him back. So what? So they could have tea together and discuss politics. No, you're going to kill them. You're going to kill them dead. And so the first group of messengers get there, and they get to where the prophets are prophesying and where Samuel is, and they cannot touch David. In fact, they begin to prophesy themselves and the Holy Spirit overcomes them, and they can't carry out their murderous orders. All they can do is praise God, and God speaks to them. I wonder, it doesn't say what they were saying, but maybe they were saying stuff like, blessed is David who will be the next king, you know? And they're like, come on, you gotta have fun with this. So he sends his second group, and they, the same thing happens to them. They get to the place where the presence of God is, and they can't bust through it to put a hand on David, so the Lord begins to speak through them. And Saul hears about that. He sends a third set. Hey, the third set does the same thing. Saul knew baseball. Three strikes, you're out. He gets off, off his throne, and he goes to Ramah himself. <laughs> Which, you know, the old adage, if you want something done, amen. It's biblical. He gets up and he goes. And, you know, finally he gets into the, the presence of God and he's looking for David and Samuel. And God hammers Saul with his presence. And Saul, who's estranged from God, who the Holy Spirit's been withdrawn from, who's afflicted by tormenting spirits, now God's speaking through him. I don't know about you, but that seems to just blow some circuits in my mind. How could you, how could, you know, and it's because we have wrong thinking about God using people. God can speak through anyone he wants. God spoke through a donkey in scripture when dealing with Balaam. I mean, if God can speak through a donkey, surely there's hope for most of us, right? This gives me great encouragement here. That, you know, God can speak through anyone. But listen, just because God speaks through you, that, that's a gift, you know, and the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. But it doesn't mean that the person who God is speaking through is actually even right with God. See, and this is what we've got to get us, charismatic, you know, uh, evangelical, whatever label you want to throw on us. But we're, we're a little dense because we think just because a person's preaching and it sounds good or they're saying the word of the Lord and it sounds good or God's using them and people are getting saved through their ministry, that just because what God is doing through them is good, that they're good. And that's not true. History proves that it's not true. You and I need to continue to use discernment with people. Look, if you're looking at somebody, I don't care who they are, preacher, prophet, pastor, whatever title they got slapped on them, and the Holy Spirit inside of you is just going, something's not right. Come on. Anybody? Anybody got discernment? Anybody got red flags? If something's going off in you that's not right, you better heed that. But God's using them, but they got a big church, but they got padded seats. <laughs> it doesn't matter. God could speak through anyone or anything he wants, but yet we have to judge a man by the fruit that comes out of their life. 
Saul was estranged from God, yet God spoke through him. You say, well, then what in the world is all this about, Pastor? It's a little confusing. All that we're seeing here is not, you know, uh, these murderous guys, you know, getting saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. No, what we're seeing here is a hedge of protection that God put around his servant David. And it's a wall, and they can't penetrate it to do their evil desires. And God is proving once again that he's sovereign and that man's will cannot cancel his will out and that he can protect his servants from wicked people with bad intentions. If God is for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. God will go through any means necessary to preserve his call on your life, to preserve your destiny. If you will side with him and be righteous, the hedge of protection that's around each of us will keep us. When I'm right with God, when you're right with God, nobody can touch us. We're bulletproof. And there's a hedge about us that makes us bulletproof. These evil men couldn't cancel out God's will and they couldn't touch David. And we're gonna see God's hand of protection on David all throughout his reign. But you know what? It wasn't an easy road to walk. And he needed to maintain his humility. And David shows us many things to come. Let's bow our heads. Father, I just thank you this morning for your word and all the principles here that challenge us and, and provoke us to, to have wisdom. God, help us to see, Lord God, the, the fruit of a person's life and, and not to just look at the achievements or the, the working or the spiritual gifts, but Lord, to really have discernment. Father, help us not to put our trust in people who have proven they don't keep their word. Give your people wisdom so that our lives won't be dashed and afflicted and our, our, our days complicated by all of these things that wisdom could have otherwise canceled out. Father, help us to use our words to realize that instead of uh, responding to vitriol and negative things with the same response, Lord, that a little bit of mercy and a little bit of humility and a little bit of intelligent uh, correspondence can diffuse a situation that could otherwise explode. Help us to be peacemakers. Jesus, you said, blessed are the peacemakers. Help us to be the ones who broker peace. And Father, help us to value your Holy Spirit in our lives, to see the stark contrast between David, who is right with God and blessed of God, and Saul, who had rejected God and was cut off. Father, help us to walk so close with you that, Father, everything around us Everything around us is blessed and that no one's wicked plans can touch us because we're so close to your perfect will. I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.